Well, no one likes a hypocrite, right? Uh, hypocrites are people who say one thing and then they do another. Uh, they're unreliable, they're untrustworthy. You really don't know what you're getting with a hypocrite because they look like one thing and then they actually are something else on the other hand. And would you believe that religious hypocrisy actually happens in the church? Can you imagine that, that such a thing would happen? You're shocked, I know. Uh, you know, usually when we talk about religious hypocrisy, it, it's Christians sinning privately, right? And they hope no one finds out. Uh, you're trying to keep it secret. They might look like they have their lives together, but they're mixed up in uh, you know, adultery or, or theft or, or porn or substance abuse or whatever it may be. Uh, they're engaged in this sin, and, and they want nobody else to know it, right? That's one kind of religious hypocrisy, and they cover their tracks uh, you know, very deliberately so nobody finds out. But there's another kind of religious hypocrisy, and that's when Christians do what is right, but out of fear of criticism or ridicule or whatever else, they don't want anybody to know it. So they're like putting their light under a bushel, right? So nobody sees what it is that they're doing. And, and that's what we'll see from Peter this week. So I'm going to tell you a personal story about some hypocrisy in my life. And uh, this comes from a uh, before Christ, BC time. So I hope you won't hold it against me too much. Uh, but I just want to tell you a story uh, uh, about my own religious hypocrisy. So uh, I was in high school, long time ago, again, long time ago, uh, and I was part of a group of friends, uh, and we used to like to gamble a little bit. We used to like to go to the racetrack, we used to like to go to the casinos uh, and play some bets. Now, we weren't old enough to do this, of course, but, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, and our parents, of course, knew nothing about this, uh, but we, we did this as our friend group. So we usually gambled a little bit, and we lost too much money, but we were close, and we had a lot of fun, to, fun together. But one of these friends uh, kind of exposed his character over a period of time. He was just a little bit different from the rest of us. And uh, uh, like I said, our parents didn't know that we were doing these kinds of things. But his parents found out. And, and his parents thought that the rest of the friends were the devils. And their son was the angel, right? So uh, they wanted to keep us away from him. And to do that, they threatened to call our parents and tell our parents what, what we were up to and uh, just doing all kinds of things to, to uh, make us look like the bad guys. And this friend of ours, he allowed them to do that. He allowed them to think that, that he was the angel and we were the devils. And, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. I could stand up here an hour telling you stories about this guy. But anyway, uh, before long, he ended up drifting out of the group, uh, so to speak. Uh, perhaps he was expelled, uh, kicked off the island. I, I don't remember. But <laughs> after a while, he got married. And then he had three daughters uh, and uh, was married for about 10 years. Uh, he became a pharmacist, and uh, because he loved horses, he became a racehorse owner and a racehorse trainer, too. But after 10 years of marriage, his wife caught him in a marital affair. So he lost his wife, and he lost his three daughters. That cost him his family. And then he also recently pleaded guilty uh, in federal court to part of a doping scheme in his role as a horse trainer. Uh, he was doping horses to helping, help them uh, enhance their performance uh, so that they would win uh, the horse races. And so he's now serving an 18-month sentence uh, in federal prison because he got caught doing that. Now, I haven't spoken to this guy in over 30 years, and you know it didn't end well between us for reasons I left unsaid, but uh, I felt like, knowing where he was in prison, that I would send him a letter, and I would send him a Bible, and I would send him uh, the three books I had written up to that point, uh, just to try and explain to him in the letter 
what the gospel is, what the way of salvation is, because clearly he had not been living it over the past uh, 30 years or so. Uh, so I explained the gospel. I told him he could have forgiveness if he had turned his life over to Christ and uh, Christ would give him forgiveness. So, so far, so good, right? I'm like a Christian pastor. This is what I'm supposed to be doing, right? I'm not looking for credit. I'm not looking to make myself out to be a hero. Uh, here's where the hypocrisy came in. Uh, I was doing what was right, but not wanting other people to know about it. Um, just a, maybe a month ago, I was with some of these old friends. Uh, and when we get together, the topic of this guy always comes up. And, and uh, so they were kind of enjoying the demise of this guy, right? Because he got what was coming to him, and, you know, he did. He got what was definitely coming to him. Uh, so I didn't join in the celebration with these guys, but I also didn't tell them that I wrote the letter either. And it still gnaws at me because, you know, I didn't want them to know what I did, not because I was so much afraid of ridicule and criticism, I think, but I was also trying, like, not to be disloyal to them because loyalty to him means disloyalty to them. And I didn't want to come across as holier than thou, like, you guys might be ridiculing him, but me, this pious pastor, I'm sending him letters and Bibles and stuff. I didn't want to come across like that either. So I wasn't sure how to handle that situation. So I didn't say anything. And now I'm still thinking, you know, perhaps that was hypocritical. Perhaps I should have come right out and told them what I did. And so what we see from our passage today is Peter doing what was right, but yet burying under a bushel, right? Not wanting anybody else to know about it. So that's what we'll be talking about today. And this is the third sermon in what we will be uh, in a little, I guess, mini-series within Galatians about Paul's authority. This is where he's trying to prove to them that he's got authority to preach to them the true gospel and not listen to the Galatians. Uh, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, not the Galatians, uh, the Judaizers in Galatia. So in chapter 1, Paul said that he had a better call a better commission uh, than these Judaizers because he had received revelation directly from Jesus Christ. Uh, so that was the first week. Then the second week, last week, we were talking about Paul having better authority than the Judaizers because uh, these apostles in Jerusalem had given him the right hand of fellowship, which was something that they did not give to the Judaizers. And now this week, uh, this is more a demonstrative uh, use of authority. Paul in this uh, section is, is demonstrating his authority uh, as a, an apostle by rebuking the esteemed apostle Peter. Now you have to be on pretty level ground with Peter to be able to rebuke him. And so that's what he does this week. So three different ways that Paul is showing that he's got authority uh, to these Galatians, that they should not be paying attention to what these Judaizers are saying. So in the passage we're looking at today, Peter is very concerned uh, about getting caught in doing what was right. Uh, he had been eating with the Gentiles, which of course he should be doing, uh, but then when these men from James came, he stopped eating with them, uh, and so that's religious hypocrisy, and that can destroy the church, and that's what Paul was so concerned about. So for us, uh, the need that we have for a sermon like this today is, is for us to recognize that there is such a thing as religious hypocrisy uh, and recognize that it can destroy the church, and, and so we ought to be on guard against it. Uh, and we, we think about this and we wonder how there can be possibly, how there possibly can be hypocrisy in the church. Well, you know, we're all sinful people, right? None of us has arrived yet, and until uh, Christ takes us home in glory, we will all be sinners, and we all will... Uh, from time to time uh, get caught or, or at least engage in religious hypocrisy as much as we'll try not to. So we're going to look at Galatians uh, 
chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. There's, a, there's an outline in your bulletin. You can follow along. Uh, so we're going to talk about, uh, first, the, the, the background, a little bit of background, what the church was like in Antioch and what it was like to the, the, these customs of table fellowship before we talk about uh, what Peter did wrong, his hypocrisy, and then Paul's rebuke. Then we'll talk about some of the dangers of religious hypocrisy in our day and then finish with some applications. So uh, looking at the passage again, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of some men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and separate himself, fearing those from the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? So let's just talk about this church in Antioch for a minute. And, and let's understand that the church in Antioch was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. So if you just flip back a couple books uh, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11, uh, we're just going to look at this a little bit, starting in verse 19, and also put up a slide to help us uh, understand where we are and what we're talking about here. So um, this, this church in Antioch grew out of persecution uh, in Jerusalem. So after Stephen was stoned uh, in Acts chapter 7, well, many of the Jews fled for other parts, and one of the places they landed was in this place called Antioch, which is north of Jerusalem. Uh, and so they started a church there. It was a church of Jews then, right? Because it was the Jews who were fleeing Jerusalem. But then Acts chapter 11, if you're looking at it, shows that uh, men of Cyprus and men of Cyrene started to speak the word of the Lord to Greeks as well, uh, to Gentiles. And so this church becomes a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. And the hand of the Lord was with them. A large number of people came to faith. And so this church in Antioch became a major home base. It became a hub for Christianity uh, as, as uh, the church grew there. And it grew so much, in fact, that the news of the growth of this church reached all the way down to Jerusalem. They were hearing this church in Antioch, something's going on up there. So they sent Barnabas up to see, to check out this church in Antioch. And he couldn't believe what he saw, the, the growth of the church, the faithfulness of these Christians. And so he encouraged them, and even more people came to the Lord. Well, it seems like he understood that he was going to need some help with this church. So his idea is, I'm going to go find Paul. Uh, Paul can help me with this church. Now, remember, Paul and Barnabas had a friendship from years earlier when Paul, the first time he came up to Jerusalem, uh, he wanted to meet with the apostles, and the apostles were afraid of him because he was killing Christians, right? So Barnabas vouched for him and said, no, his conversion was real. You can trust this guy. Uh, and so they did. And so Barnabas and Paul have this friendship. So Barnabas goes to, uh, to uh, Cilicia, which is north of Antioch, where Paul had been ministering for about 10 years, and he brings him back down to Antioch. And together, uh, they had brought many more Christians, uh, made more Gentiles and Jews into Christians in Antioch. Now, at the end of Acts chapter 11, we see that Paul and Barnabas collected this offering for famine relief in Jerusalem, and they brought it down to Jerusalem uh, to give to the church there. 
And so probably when Paul and Barnabas were down there in Jerusalem with this famine offering, that's when Peter heard directly from them how well this church was doing. So Peter wanted to check it out for himself. So Peter now goes up to Antioch, and that is where this confrontation happened between Peter and Paul. So we have the stage set now, and one thing we learn from uh, this incident, one thing that the gospel does, is that the gospel changes the customs of table fellowship. Now, remember, if you'll turn back one more chapter in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter was, uh, uh, had a vision, right? Peter had a vision uh, after, or when, when he was, before his visit to Antioch, he had a vision about, the, uh, about God sending unclean foods down to him on this big sheet. Remember that? And, and three times this vision happened and, and, and accompanied by a voice that, from God that said, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, no, the three times. Lord, I have never eaten anything unclean. And so God says to Peter, what God has cleansed no longer call unclean, unholy. So while Peter is thinking about this vision in Acts chapter 10, some Gentiles knock on the door, right? And they, they say, come with us. We want you to come with us to Cornelius, a Roman centurion in Caesarea, a Gentile. Come and see this man. So Peter went and he entered into the house of Cornelius, asked why he had came. And Cornelius uh, told uh, Peter, God had sent me a vision to, go, to call for you to come and preach to us. So Peter obviously recognizes God's hand in all this in giving him the vision and then leading him to Cornelius' house. And so he preaches the gospel to them. His whole household believed and they received the Holy Spirit. And Peter had them baptized. And then they asked Peter if he would stay with them for a few more days, which Peter did. And while he was there, certainly he would have eaten with these Gentiles as well, knowing that there was nothing wrong with that because God had shown him that there are no distinctions, no partiality now for Jews over Gentiles. So the gospel changed the customs of table fellowship, which is a really big deal. Now there is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles in terms of salvation. And since all could be saved, there's no reason for Gentiles not to eat with Jews and vice versa. And so even though they're from different backgrounds, uh, they can eat together, they can share table fellowship. And this was, of course, revolutionary in Jewish culture. Uh, because table fellowship is a very big deal, you know. We don't typically, you know, walk down the street and just pick a stranger and, and ask him to come to our house for dinner, right? Uh, table fellowship uh, indicates some kind of intimacy, some level of intimacy, uh, and it also shows uh, social and cultural acceptance. Now, in the past, uh, Jewish tradition prohibited them from eating with the Gentiles. They would never share a meal with the Gentiles, even to enter their house uh, was not permitted because they were considered unclean, with unclean customs, eating unclean foods. And Jews believed that just having contact with them, entering into their house, would make them unclean. But now God had shown Peter that all of that was in the past. That's not the case anymore because the gospel changes everything. So Peter ate with Cornelius and the Gentiles in Caesarea. And then later when Peter visited uh, the church in Antioch, and it takes us back here to Galatians chapter 2, he ate with those Gentiles too, just like he always had. This was his regular practice. So here you have Peter now in Antioch, eating with Gentiles, just like he had been doing uh, ever since he had see seen this vision back in Acts chapter 10. But what we learn next is that Peter's changed conduct when the Judaizers arrived damaged the gospel. 
And so these men from James come, right? And these are men who cling tightly to circumcision. You have to do this. You have to do circumcision as well as the law. Now, they're called men from James, but it's highly doubtful that James actually sent them with his authority, uh, with his stamp of approval. And I say that because after Cornelius received the Holy Spirit, uh, and then Peter went to Jerusalem, and remember, he had to defend himself uh, back in Acts chapter 11 now, the Jews accused him of breaking the law by entering into the home of Cornelius and eating, spending time with uh, Gentiles. And Peter, again, related this story to them of how God sent the vision and, and how Cornelius had a vision, and Peter preached the gospel to them, and they received the Holy Spirit, just like the Jews did at Pentecost. Uh, so how could he not eat with them? How could he not have them baptized? And so the Jews were amazed uh, that God had even shown this repentance that leads to life, even to the Gentiles. Now remember, James was pre presiding over the church in Jerusalem at this time. So he would have been present to hear Peter's presentation, and he accepted this testimony of Peter. And we know from Acts 15 that James didn't require uh, these, uh, these new Christians, these Gentile Christians, to be circumcised or keep the law. So these Judaizers didn't come with James's authority. Uh, but they did come from Jer Jerusalem. But they were still intimidating, right? Because they came in, in numbers and they insisted that salvation was through faith in Jesus. So far, so good, right? But then they added on, plus keeping the law and circumcision, plus observing Jewish dietary restrictions, which would have prohibited Peter from eating with them, even though these Gentiles believed and had been baptized and had been accepted into the fellowship. So when the Judaizers arrived at Antioch, Somehow, they intimidated Peter so that he was now afraid to eat with these Gentiles, even though he knew that God had accepted them and it was right for him to eat with them. Instead, he began to withdraw. So we are left to wonder why. I mean, why would Peter do that? Why would an apostle of Peter's stature and Peter's clout be intimidated by a group of Judaizers? Well, we don't really know. One commentator suggested that the Zealot party was very active at the time, and, and they pressured Peter uh, to not eat with the reviled Gentiles. Uh, the, the Zealots were a Jewish political movement that wanted to incite uh, an overthrow of Rome through violence uh, by use of force. And so, you know, like the mafia might, the, the, the zealots might make trouble for anybody who uh, wanted to be a sympathizer uh, to somebody uh, who was a Gentile. And that may be why Peter changed his behavior. I, I think there's some speculation there. We don't really know. But for whatever the reason, Peter was being hypocritical, and, and Paul needed to correct it. So Paul confronted Peter's hypocrisy. But when I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? So this is a turnabout, isn't it? Like in, in Jerusalem, not long ago, uh, Peter offered Paul the right hand of fellowship. And now here in Antioch, Paul has to rebuke uh, Peter right to his face uh, in front of all these other people. And it wasn't that Peter was denying any of the essential doctrines of Christianity, right? I'm, I'm sure if you asked Peter about his doctrine, it would have been fine. But he was acting like a hypocrite. He wasn't practicing what he preached. And so uh, in not eating with the Gentiles, he was acting superior to them, right? Holding himself aloof from them. And that could create factions in the church. And it could destroy the church. 
And not only that, it would be a huge win for these Judaizers, right? Like if you're a Judaizer and you could claim Peter, uh, the esteemed apostle Peter, and say, look, Peter's in our camp. He believes us. Uh, he follows our practices. Well, that's going to go a long way uh, toward having credibility. So the stakes here are enormous. And Peter's hypocrisy was public. This was happening in the open for everybody to see. And Peter's hypocrisy influenced the rest of the people there. Uh, and so since his hypocrisy was public, Paul's rebuke also had to be public. <clears throat> so by rebuking Peter, he's also rebuking all who fell into the same behavior as Peter and followed this practice. So Paul says uh, about Peter, uh, he's not being straightforward about the gospel. And that word straightforward is the Greek word orthopodine. An interesting word, right? It means uh, to walk with straight feet, to walk a straight course. Uh, we get our English word orthopedic from this word. So translating this verse using like English medical jargon, uh, Paul might have said, but when I saw that they were not walking orthopedically, that is in a straightforward or unwavering or sincere way, then he had to rebuke Paul. So uh, Peter, so it was Paul's, uh, <laughs> Peter and Paul, it was Peter's crooked walk uh, that was distorting the gospel. So he was being a hypocrite, and Paul has to call him out. So in, in the first century culture, a hypocrite means one who puts on a mask, right? And, and this refers generally to the theater, uh, where an actor would play multiple roles, and he would hold up a different mask in front of his face. I'm playing this part, I'm holding this mask up. I'm playing this part, I'm holding another mask up. Uh, to show the audience which one he was at the time he was speaking. So in this case, uh, we have Peter and we have Barnabas and we have all the rest of the, these uh, Christians who are, are uh, used to eat with these, with these Gentiles. Now they're wearing a mask, right? They, they're not uh, doing what they used to do when these intimidating uh, Judaizers came. So they knew these Gentile believers were Christians, uh, but because of the pressure from these Judaizers, they acted like the Gentiles were not full-blooded Christians, right? They're not, they're not all the way in. They're, they're part of the way in, but because they're Gentiles, we can only allow them some of the way in. So they were treating them like they were second-class citizens, uh, like lepers uh, separating from them. They didn't want anything to do with them. And this, you know, reminds us very much of not too long in our country uh, ago, right? We have the Jim Crow laws and segregation. Uh, this is, you know, it's just been going on for thousands of years. It's pure racism. It's pure racism, and it's wrong. So Paul asked Peter directly why he expected the Gentiles to live like Jews when he himself lived like the Gentiles. So I've been using this word Judaizer throughout this series so far, and, and this is where it comes from. In verse 14, uh, to live like the Jews is the Greek verb uh, that is pronounced Judaos, which means, in the English word, translates to Judaizer. So that's why they're called Judaizers, even though in English we, we don't typically see that word used, uh, although some translations may use it. Normally, it's that word to live like Jews. That's the word Judaizer. That's where it comes from. So here is Paul. Uh, his question condemns Peter. It condemns everybody else who followed Peter, uh, even including Barnabas. Uh, he's, he's, he's going up against all of them. Now, isn't it interesting here? Wouldn't you expect, like at the end of verse 14, that there would be some kind of response from Peter, or maybe Paul would, would uh, you know, say somehow how the matter was resolved? He doesn't say anything like that, right? It, it just kind of ends. And I think probably Peter, when it says he was condemned, he stood condemned, Peter probably just didn't have an answer. He just knew he was red-handed guilty, uh, didn't even answer. 
And maybe Paul didn't mention the outcome of this incident because he didn't want to gloat too much over his victory, uh, but he wrote just as much as he needed to to prove to these Galatians that he had the authority uh, to, uh, to uh, rebuke Peter. So uh, remember, he, he's writing for two reasons. One, he's writing to show that it's not necessary to keep the law and circumcision in order to be a true Christian, right? A Christian is somebody who believes the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, and that by faith in him, we have eternal life. So that's one reason he wrote. But the second reason he wrote is to prove that he had the authority to rebuke even such a one as Peter. And so remember, that's the reason why uh, Paul recounted this incident to the Galatians to begin with. He's trying to convince them to trust him over uh, these Judaizers uh, by establishing his authority. And as we've said, he's established his authority by proving that he's got a better ministry, a better revelation because it came from Jesus Christ. He received the right hand of fellowship from the apostles. And now uh, this particular incident is as much about his authority to rebuke Peter as it is about the content of the dispute. So again, uh, if we're comparing resumes, and we're looking at Paul's resume on the one hand, and we're looking at the Judaizers on the other, and we're comparing credentials, I mean, Paul wins in a landslide, right? It's not even close. Uh, he's, he's defeated them at every level. He's shown his authority. He's shown that he's right. And the reason he's done this is because he's just laying a foundation of his authority because what he really wants to get to is to talk again about the gospel, uh, about the gospel of justification by faith alone apart from works. And that's where we're headed over the next several weeks. Uh, but first, the authority, establishing his authority was paramount. So we'll talk about justification by faith over the next several weeks, but I want to spend a few minutes now talking about the dangers of religious hypocrisy. And there are many of them. Uh, let's just start with this one. Religious hypocrisy hurts the witness of the church to unbelievers. To unbelievers, right? The, the media loves to report whenever some Christian leader or pastor or, or famous televangelist or whatever ha has fallen, right? He could be caught uh, in, a, in a marital affair or with his hand in the till or, uh, you know, refusing to, to take accountability from his elder board or becoming too power hungry so that he becomes larger than the church, like this cult of personality that, that can't be controlled. Uh, and so when the outside world, when unbelievers see uh, a well-known Christian, somebody who uh, they would think represents all of us, when they see somebody like that fall, well, the, the, the outside world says, look, I mean, the church is no better than anyone else, right? The church looks just like Enron. They look just like Bernie Madoff to me. Like, why would I want to be a part of such a group like that? Uh, and this damages the entire church, the, the church, the people in the church, uh, because uh, we are supposed to be rep representing Christ. And it also damages the reputation of Christ himself, who we are supposed to be his disciples. So religious hypocrisy has caused immeasurable damage to unbelievers because uh, when we Christians get in the way of them coming to Christ, uh, we become the problem, right? We have to be sure we're not the problem uh, because they don't want to join a church that looks like it's full of hypocrites. So we have to be careful uh, because religious hypocrisy hurts the witness of, church, of the church to unbelievers. But of course, it also, religious hypocrisy damages believers. Just think about uh, religious hypocrisy and the damage that it's caused within the church. 
uh, many Christians, how many have revered the likes of you know, Ravi Zacharias or Mark Driscoll or a Jimmy Swaggart or a Jim Baker or a Bill Hybels or any number of these people uh, just to have their hearts broken uh, when these leaders fell. And so I know some of them have repented, but, but even when they repent, you know, the damage oftentimes is already done. You, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, so to speak, right? And so, uh, so much damage is already done. And when we put our leaders on too high of a pedestal, uh, we, we forget sometimes that they are human as well, and they're some subject to the same temptations we are, and sometimes even greater temptations because of their position. So we need to be sure, you and I, need to be sure that we are following Christ, that he is the one on the pedestal, and that whatever religious leader or teacher that we happen to be following points us to him and not to themselves, right? And that means testing the leader's message and his conduct and his fruit uh, against scripture. Remember that Christ is the head of the church, right? Uh, I am not the head of Grace Redeemer Community Church, newsflash, right? Christ is the head of Grace Redeemer Community Church. So that if I fall, uh, you'll all be all right because you're following Christ, you're not following me. And that's what we all need to do in, in terms of, of how we look at our Christian leaders. So religious hypocrisy can damage believers very much too. Religious hypocrisy is also contagious. You know, people may follow an esteemed religious leader right into the same hypocrisy. We see it in this very passage. When, when Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles, so did the other Jewish Christians. So Barnabas followed, right? Barnabas is a rock-solid Christian. Couldn't get any more solid than Barnabas. Ten years he's been following or more. So leaders can be extremely influential, right? Because they have a high visibility, a significant public platform. In our day, uh, social media, right? A huge platform on social media. Uh, these people attract followers. Uh, and people can be like sheep sometimes, right? I'm sure you've noticed that, right? Easily led uh, into uh, some things that they, they shouldn't be led into. So, uh, and they can be caught in the same hypocrisy or same heresy even as their leaders. So think about some of the cults that exist today, right? Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Scientology, Christian Science. What do they all have in common? Well, they were all started by a very strong leader, right? Who, who had this idea and then he drew a large flock of sheep to follow him. So religious hypocrisy rarely affects just the leader, right? He's always pulling people with him and it's his followers that he often drags into hypocrisy or heresy, uh, just terrible things that happen. And the strongest biblical example I can think of is the Pharisees, right? Jesus called them out so hard in Matthew chapter 23. Um, he said, to, uh, he said to the Pharisees, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven in front of people, for you do not enter it yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel on the sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. I mean, that's strong, isn't it? That's strong language. And so this is what uh, Jesus, I mean, Jesus couldn't stand hypocrisy. He couldn't stand the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who pretended to be one thing. You know, outside they look like whitewashed tombs and inside they're full of dead men's bones, right? He hated religious hypocrisy because hypocritical leaders make hypocritical disciples and that is a big problem. 
So that's another one. Religious hypocrisy is contagious. Religious hypocrisy also creates different classes of Christians. So let's reverse the situation in Antioch. Uh, let's suppose that uh, I said here at Grace Redeemer that we're going to allow people from a Jewish background to come and worship with us, but we won't eat meals with them and we won't allow them to come to our potlucks and Bible studies and game nights or whatever else, right? I mean, you'd all be appalled, right? We, as you should be. Uh, we certainly would never do that. But this is the effect of what Peter was doing in Antioch. He knew these Christians in Antioch were true believers, but by refusing to eat with them, he created separate classes of Christians. So in Antioch, these Judaizers looked down their noses at these Gentiles because they were not circumcised, because they didn't keep the law. And so they were discriminating against them, creating uh, an in-crowd, right? We here are the in-crowd, and you guys, well, you're the out-crowd. You're over here, and you can't really be part of our fellowship. We know you're Christians, but you know, not, not really all the way. So two classes of Christians, and that's a big problem. Now, we understand as, as, as Christians that there are no classes of Christians, right? Jesus died for all. And anyone, regardless of race, nationality, gender, age, height, weight, resume, past failures, you name it, right? Nobody is barred from coming. They can all come to the Lord for salvation. So should we treat anyone for whom Christ died any differently? Uh, should we act like we're somehow better uh, or, or more esteemed uh, than someone else and hold ourselves aloof from them? Well, this behavior creates different classes of Christians, and Paul recognized the danger. And so the gospel was at stake. If Christ died for all, that means he accepts all, and we should too. So there's no place for racism or sexism or any kind of ism outside the church, but especially in the church. This is the last place we ought to find these things. So it creates different classes of Christians. Uh, it also causes conflict in the church. Uh, Peter's uh, conduct created a clash in the church about proper practice and, and attitudes toward people of backgrounds, different backgrounds. Uh, they were treating people with a different background differently. So Paul had to address it publicly or, or risk that this conduct would cause a church split. And so here's Paul. He's forced to stand alone against a mob now, right? That creates conflict in a church. It's a lonely business, but Paul had to do it, and it took great courage. And, and for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church, Paul was willing to do it. But man, what a conflict that must have been, right? When you imagine being a fly on the wall there, you probably could have heard a pin drop as Paul gets up and publicly rebukes Peter like this. So we see all these different problems, and, and I just want us to understand that, that we can be religious hypocrites too, because hiding our light, hiding your light under a basket is religious hypocrisy. God is not looking for secret agents, right? He's not looking for James Bonds to, to, to go in undercover. Uh, he's looking for bold Christians. Uh, so we don't want to be people who do what's right, but then hide it from the rest of the public. Uh, we want to be people who are bold Christians. Jesus said, shine your light, shine your light in the Sermon on the Mount so that those who see it will, will glorify God after seeing your works. And so that's why I say I think I was hypocritical when I did not uh, tell my friends uh, I sent that letter uh, with the Bible and the books in it. So uh, we just have to be careful of religious hypocrisy. And I've given you some examples. Uh, we could talk about this for hours, how many different examples there are of religious hypocrisy. You could come up with many other dangers and consequences of religious hypocrisy on your own, but uh, I think you get the point, right? It, it's a cancer in the church, and we have to do all we can to root it out, to recognize it, and, and say, 
that's religious hypocrisy and we're not gonna stand for it here because of what it does to the church. So let's just think about some takeaways from this uh, episode in Antioch. Uh, first one is this. You know, Satan is still trying to destroy the church, right? Uh, Satan is a persistent fellow. Uh, imagine Satan during the 40s, right? This is a long time ago. This is 2,000 years ago. Like within the decade, uh, Christ, he, he thought he, he had this one, this great victory when, when Christ died on the cross, right? Only to have Jesus rise again. So what did he do next? Well, if he couldn't defeat Christ, he would try to destroy Christ's church. And so he would try and destroy the people who were loyal to his arch enemies, God and Jesus. And he's been doing it since then, right? Since the very beginning. Uh, for 2,000 years, he's been trying to devour Christians. He was present in that hypocrisy in Antioch, and he's present in the, in the current watering down of Christian doctrine that we see in our churches today. Uh, and he's, he's present in the denominational factions and divisions that mark our day. And he's present in the daily temptations that to, to sin that we have every day. And so he'll do anything he can to trip us up, uh, to ruin our lives and damage our witness. So we have to, as Christians, we have to always be on guard. We should be constantly testing ourselves to be sure uh, that our walk and our talk match. Uh, ask the Holy Spirit to shine a light on anything in our own lives, any, any potential hypocrisy in your life, life and, and ask the Holy Spirit to help you fix it before irreversible damage is done because Satan is still trying to destroy the church. Another thing is that we need to have the courage to confront sin. Paul had the courage to confront Peter uh, when it was necessary, and this was a watershed moment in church history. Uh, if CNN or if Fox News existed at this time, the footage would be all over the news. I mean, it was that big of a deal. Uh, and Paul didn't rebuke this pillar of the church lightly. He went into this thing thinking about what was at stake here and deciding that it had to be done. So if you think you might need to confront somebody about religious hypocrisy, I would advise you first, pray about it. A lot. Pray about it a lot, right? Uh, and ask God if it's necessary, and if it is, you know, how to do it in the way that is the most gentle, loving, and effective way possible. Uh, Paul did it, and it may not be too much to say that by doing it, he saved the church. And then the third thing I would say is that hypocrites can repent. You know, some non-churchgoers say, you know, I don't go to church. It's full of hypocrites, right? I'm sure you've heard that one before, right? And that's true because the church is full of people and we all are hypocrites sometimes. And if any person who says that comes into the church, well, that would just add one more hypocrite to our body, right? Because we all have this hypocrisy in us. But hypocrites can repent and we need to remember that, right? It's not once a hypocrite, always a hypocrite. It's once a hypocrite and you know, maybe God will do an incredible work in their life. So look what Peter did. Look what God did in Peter's life. Peter spent the next 30 years going around preaching the gospel. He wrote two of the New Testament epistles. He was the source of Mark's gospel. A tradition tells us that he was crucified upside down after 30 years because he deemed himself unworthy to die in the same way as his Lord. So if you have been a hypocrite, Welcome to the club, right? We've all been hypocrites. Uh, don't deny it. Don't make excuses for it. Just admit it. Own it. Uh, every time, for example, someone asks us in church, 
how are you doing? And you, you know, you're struggling really bad, but you put on your Sunday morning face and you say, oh, I'm great, praise the Lord, right? That's an example of religious hypocrisy. If somebody asks you how you're doing and you really think they want to know, you know, sometimes people really don't want to know, but if, if they're friends with you and, and, you know, you can feel free to say, you know, I really had a tough week and this is what happened. Uh, that's one way that we can be religious uh, hypocrites. But another way is like every time we hold ourselves out as like these ideal Christians, these model Christians, when we know we're doing something on the side that we shouldn't be doing, right? That's religious hypocrisy too. And when it comes out, it damages the church's witness. So we're hypocrites when we do that. So uh, I would just say repent, right? Jesus still loves us. He still died for our sins. And so uh, what I'm gonna do about mine is I'm gonna see my friends in a couple weeks and I'm gonna look for every opportunity to, to get it out, what I did with my, with my other friend. Uh, and you know, if they ridicule, if they criticize, so be it. But I'm hoping what will happen is they would say to me, why did you do that? And that'll be an opportunity to share the gospel. So I'm hopeful that that's what happens. So if you know somebody who's been a hypocrite, forgive them, right? If you've been a hypocrite, repent. Jesus forgives all who come to him in repentance. And that's the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? Jesus forgives all sinners who trust in him for salvation. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, we thank you for this message. This, this, this uh, particular uh, piece of scripture here, Lord, just these four verses uh, speak so much to the human condition and so much to what we see in our churches today, Lord. And, and I just pray that you would protect us uh, from any of the effects of religious hypocrisy, Lord, and also protect us from being religious hypocrites, Lord. Uh, we need to walk straight forward, uh, orthopedically, as, as uh, Paul said it here, uh, in a straight line, and so that people would look at us and say, that, that person has something that I need. Lord, I pray that you would uh, work your Holy Spirit in us, Lord, so we would be uh, Christians who are attractive to other people, so that we might have an influence on the world and change it, so that we don't continue to see stories like we see in Buffalo from yesterday, Lord. We need you so desperately, Lord, every day, and the world needs you too. So help us to be instruments in your hands. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.